what if there is a knock at your door? You open it up, and there standing in front of you is someone you've never seen before, but you know who he is. It's Christ. There's no mistaking him. You just know it's the Lord himself. In that case, what do you do? Do you bow down? Do you invite him in? Offer him something to drink? Should you ask him to stay for dinner? What should you do? You know, those are all good things, but those are not the reasons why he's knocking at your door. Those are all good things, but none of them are the most important thing. None of those things is the one thing needful. The one thing every one of us must do in the presence of our Lord. So what is that most important thing that you could do for Jesus? And that takes us to Roman numeral one in your worship outline, page 11 in your bulletin. What is the highest form of worship? What's the greatest thing you can do for the Lord? Simply this, to receive what the Lord has to give to you. Receive from him. That's why he's there. You know, the Lord doesn't need what we have to give. Our neighbor does. That's why we give. But we need what he has to give. That's worship. That's the highest form of worship. The world runs with its own understanding of what worship is. Well, we need to do this. We need to do that. We need to do it better. We need to do it more. But biblically speaking, worship is all about what God gives to you, not what you're giving to God. We see this in the story of Mary and Martha, Luke 10. Martha's busy doing good things for Jesus. And she's so preoccupied with those good things that she forgets the one thing needful. And that's what Mary's doing. At the feet of Jesus, she's hearing his word. As we've said before, our Lord was the one rabbi who would teach women also, and he did. He had many women followers. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the Lord. His place is to give. Our place is to receive. It begins at baptism. He washes your sins away. I don't. I simply apply the water and speak his words, but he's doing the work. He feeds us with his body and blood. He declares us forgiven. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us new birth and a whole new life that never ends. He gives, we receive. That's God. That's the biblical God. 
And that brings us to our gospel reading for this morning from Matthew 22, beginning at verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables. These are the audience here are the chief priests and the Pharisees, uh, many of whom are opposed to Jesus. We learned that last week. So the dialogue continues. He speaks to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And that's Roman numeral two in your outline. The king is celebrating his son. He's celebrating what his son has come into the world and accomplished, which is the salvation of humanity, the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus said in John 3, the Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's the mission of Jesus. And so the Father in heaven celebrates that. And if the Father in heaven celebrates your salvation and mine, you know what? We ought to be celebrating it as well. And that's what we do here every Lord's Day. Now, letter A, all Israel had been invited to this banquet. And that's verse 3. He sent his servants, these would be the prophets, to those who had been invited. It's a previous invitation that's been accepted. And this is the way banquets were held in the ancient world. There would be an initial invitation, the first invitation that would go out. And the people would respond one way or the other saying, you know, I'm going to have a feast. Can you come? They would give their response. And then the host would prepare the banquet and then send out the second invitation. It's ready. Come now. There's no refrigeration. We can't store the leftovers. They must be consumed now. And so Israel received that first invitation. And they responded affirmatively. Throughout the Old Testament, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. There's a promised king coming, a promised Messiah. We will listen to him. They responded affirmatively. And we in the church, the new Israel of God, we've responded affirmatively as well. In our baptism, at our confirmation, when we joined the church, when we're asked this question, do you intend to hear the word of God and receive the Lord's Supper faithfully? That means frequently. We say, yes, I will with the help of God. We respond to the initial invitation. And then the second invitation goes out. Every Lord's Day, it's ready, come. So Israel and the church Respond affirmatively, yes. And then the second invitation comes. That's number two under part A, the specific invitation. All things are ready. Come now. Come now. We read in verse 3, but they refused to come. Surprising. But knowing human nature, I suppose not. 
verse 4, the king will not give up. He's persistent. He sent more servants and said, tell those who've been invited that I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. Celebrate the goodness of the Lord to you. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. And that's part B, Israel's response. They would not come, and why not? Number two, they turned legitimate occupations into their preoccupation. They prefer, they prefer their God-given tasks to God himself. And that's what I call a subtle rebellion. It's a less obvious form of rebellion. It's not like you murder the prophet. You just ignore him and thereby ignore God. And I pondered this question, which is the more serious refusal? Is it to kill the prophet or is it to simply ignore the prophet as if he doesn't exist and therefore God does not exist? And, and I tell you, in all my study of Scripture, I'm convinced that the worst thing you can do to the Lord is to ignore him, to pretend he's not there, that he doesn't exist. I think he would prefer that we strike out at him, that we become angry with him. At least we're acknowledging him and his existence and his invitation. We're just making excuses for it. But that's a more subtle form of rebellion. It's, it's easily justified. It's less obvious and therefore more dangerous, I think. When you purposely lash out at the messenger, then I think at least your conscience should strike you. You say, well, I know I've done wrong. That's not right. But with the subtle form of rebellion, it's very insidious. And you don't realize. You kid yourself into thinking that you're justified in refusing the invitation. So they turned legitimate occupations into their preoccupations. And then number three, there was the overt rebellion. There's the violence. Verse six, they seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. Number four in the outline, I, I think is telling. And Malachi talks about this. The last prophet in the Old Testament he said to his people, you would not treat an earthly king, an earthly dignitary, the way you treat the Lord. You'd be ashamed to do that. But we're not ashamed to ignore our Lord. So number five, when God's gift of life is refused, what remains? If the Son is the source of salvation and forgiveness and reconciliation with God, when you refuse the Son, you refuse reconciliation. You refuse life itself. And you do it once. And you do it twice. And it becomes easier again and again and again. It's very subtle. When God's gift of life is refused, only judgment remains. We're all born under judgment. St. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, we're all by nature children of wrath. We're born under the judgment of God. That's our default position. And to refuse Christ 
is to remain under that judgment or it is to put yourself back under it. That's your doing. It's not his. And only judgment remains. Either Jesus answers for your sins or you decide you'll answer for them yourself. Roman numeral three, but the Lord will not be denied the opportunity to give. He will not be denied the opportunity to be gracious. It is his place to give. Verses eight through 10, then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite into the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. God will find someone to give to. If it's not you or me, it'll be your neighbor, your coworker. It'll be someone. It is his place to give, and he will do it. It's our place to receive. So all are invited, the good as well as the bad, all nations. No one's excluded from this invitation. It's yours, it's mine. But letter B, hypocrisy will not be tolerated. Hypocrisy, play acting. We read in verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Now, what's, what's going on? Well, this man is a counterfeit Christian. And remember, the bad as well as the good are mixed together in the assembly. And you can't look into anyone's heart and make that judgment. Only God can see into the heart. But evidently, this is a man who wants, he wants heaven. He wants God, but he wants heaven. He wants God on his own terms. He will decide what's best to wear to the feast. He will make that judgment. I'm assuming there's some sort of a dress code going on here. But this man ignores it. He knows what's best, and he wants the banquet on his terms, not God's. That's counterfeit Christianity. This is the Lord's banquet. He gives in honor of his son and what his son has done for you and me and for all humanity. He will set the terms, you see. And, and this reminds me of what the prophet Isaiah wrote in chapter 61 of his prophecy, I delighted greatly in the Lord, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has arrayed me in the robe of his righteousness. There's admission to the feast, you see. God clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. This is why St. Paul wrote, all of you who've been baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Christ is your admission to the banquet, you see. It's not for you to determine how you get in and how you remain in. It's all Jesus all the way, all the time. And he is God's gift to you. We receive this on his terms. It's Christ. 
It's Christ alone. He is our admission to heaven. And so, Roman numeral four, what's your response? You know, we, we've all accepted the general invitation or we wouldn't be here. When that question is put to us, do you intend to hear the word of God and to receive the Lord's Supper faithfully? We say, yes, I will with the help of God. And we mean it. We mean it. But do our legitimate God-given occupations become our preoccupations instead? Do we begin to ignore the Lord? The more you do it, the easier it is. Same with me as with you. St. Paul said, let every man who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So if Christ came into your presence, and by the way, he does every Lord's Day, it's up to him to decide when and how he comes, and he promises to come. Now, I know he can meet you on the lake, but he hasn't promised to. He can meet you in a forest somewhere, but he hasn't promised to. Where does he meet you in a gracious, forgiving way? He's promised to meet you in the assembly where two or more gather in his name. There he is for you. That we know. That we seek. So what's the highest form of worship? We, we call this, what we do every Lord's Day, we call it divine service for a reason. The world hears that and thinks, well, we, we need to do things. We need to serve the Lord. No, you need the Lord serving you with his forgiveness. We sin often and we need what he has to give. That's why we gather. We gather to receive his gifts. Every divine service is a celebration. It is a party celebrating the goodness of the Lord to sinners like us. So how do you respond? By doing what you're doing now hearing and receiving what he alone can give. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus, amen. <laughs>